0: Welcome to Lost in Science for another week. On the show this week, we are flying high and we are digging down and getting dirty. Uh, Chris is talking to uh, Crystal Costaglu, who is a Deakin University researcher doing her PhD into the wonderful world of ornithology. And they will be chatting about lapwings, who are an Australian uh, family of birds who have some very interesting behavior and also on the show we bring you part two of Claire's interview with Valerie Karen on dung beetles which should interest anyone who was having a good time listening to that last week if you do want to hear part one please download the podcast from the 15th of July if you do want to hear that episode but please stay tuned for those interviews coming up later on the show.
1: Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. I have with me on the line, Crystal Costaglu, who is a researcher from Deakin University and PhD candidate. Thank you for joining us, Crystal.
2: Thank you for having me, Chris. I'm excited to um, talk to you today.
1: Yeah, well, I'm really excited to find out about your research. Where can people find marsh lapwings around the country?
2: Lapwings are our, a resident Australian shorebird species, um, and they can occur um, all around Australia. However, there are two subspecies, so there's a northern species and then a southern subspecies. Large population of lapwings on Phillip Island in Victoria. If you're ever down there, you will definitely see an adult lapwing.
1: Look, like a lot of people I'm sure, I have seen um, some lapwings around my area. Uh, I live in uh, Brunswick in Melbourne and see a, what I assume is a breeding pair. There's these two adult birds that hang out close to each other. They seem to walk around kind of in sync almost, keeping an eye on each other and on anyone else who's around. Can you tell me a bit about their breeding behaviour? What do they actually do?
2: I love your description of them because they definitely do kind of do everything in sync. So essentially, Lapwings generally breed over, well, the southern subspecies generally breed over winter and early spring. So throughout June through to as late as October. Now, as you said, they can be quite an urban bird, even though they are a shorebird. They um definitely occur inland a bit more as long as there's like large open parklands or um, a body of water nearby, they will generally occupy that area. Now, lapwings generally lay around three to four eggs within a nest. Now, their nests consist of a shallow scrape, which is generally on the ground, but sometimes they do occur on flat roofs, um, and they usually line these nests with grass or dried leaf litter. As you've seen, and as I'm sure most people have seen, they can nest in a range of places. So on Phillip Island, I have found them in large open farmlands, um, in large sporting ovals, but also in people's front and backyards where there isn't isn't that much space, but just enough for them to to plonk a nest down. Both adults, they share the duty of incubation. And then once the chicks hatch, you can take up to 45 days before the chicks Uh, Then fledge, which is when they have the ability to fly. Lapwings are known for their aggressive nest defense strategies. So they commonly swoop and produce these very loud alarm calls whenever they perceive maybe a threat or a predator is near their nest or their chicks. And then when they nest in such highly urban areas, The predominant people, the predominant um, perceived threat or predators are generally humans.
1: What do they do when they swoop? Is it uh, just
2: trying to scare people off or do they actually attack? Do they peck? It's just a scare tactic. So they generally swoop just as a warning to say, look, you're close to my nest, you're close to my chicks, um, please leave the area now it's different between different individuals they kind of have a bit of a personality and this is generally based on either you know their previous experience or where they've chosen to nest in the past you know what kind of predators they generally face is it always humans or is it mostly just different birds or if it's like foxes or cats they also have on their kind of on the edge of their wings which is which is kind of like their elbow, they have these short spurs. And so they appear when they're in kind of like a defensive behavior. And they don't use those most of the time. But if you are really posing yourself as a threat sometimes they can nick you with those but it's very rare because it then means that they have to get quite close to whoever they're swooping. and then it runs a large risk for themselves to get injured and obviously they do not want that because they're just trying to protect their nests so that they can continue to provide care for their eggs and their chicks
1: okay so this kind of defense behavior this is the kind of thing that you were looking at in your research is it
2: yes definitely it was definitely one part of my research so i was looking at exploring the functions and possible costs of embryonic vocalizations now these are the calls that chicks produce when they are still within the egg um, and for the two species that i looked at um, which were the lap lapwing and then another another smaller resident shorebird, the red cat plover, and for both of these species, these calls can occur up to about a week before hatching, and these calls generally sound like just a slightly fainter chick call, so they're not just little squeaks and things like that, they are a well-developed call. Now, there really isn't much known about this topic, and I was the first to examine these calls for my two species and to document them, as well, looking at these calls in a field setting, so not within a laboratory.
1: And how did you do that? Did you like put little microphones on the eggs or Mm -hmm. what did you do?
2: So I created a soundproof box. So a portable soundproof box that I took with me when I went out into the field. And so I'd have to spend many hours locating nests. And then we can also estimate the age of eggs using a flotation method which essentially kind of like how you test if an egg is good or bad, like a normal chicken egg, if it's good or bad. You do that and you look at the float, you can kind of tell how old the egg is and how far into incubation it may be. And so I generally approach these nests uh, towards the end of incubation when I know the chicks within the eggs are well-developed. And so I would then place these eggs within the soundproof box with a high-quality microphone and a digital recorder. And I would record any sound.
1: Great. And so what do the what do the calls do? They they're telling their the parents that there is danger nearby or what is it for?
2: Okay, so these calls, There's obviously I'm not exactly sure because this is kind of a novel topic um, and there's not much work out there that looks at the functions of these calls. Within my research, I've kind of developed a few hypotheses. They may act as a type of communication with the parent, a signal of imminent hatching. They might um, allow this kind of bond to occur between the incubating adults and their chicks that are about to hatch. But it might also reinforce the adult's investment in their offspring um, and also communicate perhaps the thermal stress of the embryo and they may say that essentially they're calling to describe that perhaps they're too cold and too hot and that they need either incubation or parental care thermal stress levels.
1: It sounds like a useful thing that maybe all birds could benefit from, not just um, these particularly strange um, lapwings.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I do believe that these embryonic calls would occur in a lot more species than we currently know, and it has been shown in precocial species, which are the species that I'm looking at. So essentially they are birds that have young, when they hatch, That are well developed and that they don't have to stay in a nest and they essentially can start running and feeding right from hatching but then there's the other species that are altricial and those are the common kind of songbirds and birds that nest in trees where when chicks hatch they're not as well developed and they have to stay within the nest for maybe up to a month or you know a few weeks however long it is before they can fend for themselves
1: you mentioned about how they can um they can get out and they can start running around and feeding pretty much straight away and i guess this uh, this comes back to one of the things that has been bothering me because these birds seem to have like a really they're out in the open you know they, they seem to be quite a vulnerable situation do people need to avoid disturbing them if they see them like is there a chick they need to watch out for are there is there a nest people need to watch out for or do they just keep away from them how should we deal with these birds in our neighborhood
2: it is they are a species you have to look out for because they do commonly nest in public spaces threats that may occur for them are you know large industrial lawnmowers definitely saw that in many spaces where unfortunately someone who was mowing the lawns didn't notice the nest. And because not all adults are seen as this aggressive bird, they don't always swoop. Sometimes they just disappear um, and watch from a distance essentially. So you don't know that there is a nest there. And so what I would suggest for people that have seen these birds in their area is just to have a look in the open areas. And luckily they are quite an easy bird to spot so they've got the little black head um but then they've got that bright yellow wattle and so they definitely are easy to spot when they're because you know the contrast in colors as for advice i would say if you see a nest or if you suspect that there's a nest or perhaps you know adults with chicks don't approach the area if possible i mean it can be very stressful for the birds, but it can also be stressful for yourself if they start swooping you. So I would just say avoid the area if possible. Now this could be as simple as walking on the other side of the street um, or changing your route entirely if you can. If you can't um, change your route, another simple thing to do is avoid walking directly towards the nest or looking directly at the incubating bird. When I was conducting research on these guys, I definitely found that if I looked directly at a bird and walked straight towards them while they were incubating, they were generally more aggressive towards me. However, if I kind of walked parallel to the nest and didn't look straight at them, I found that the majority of the time they didn't even leave the nest um, and they didn't bother alarm calling or getting up to swoop me. And that's just because they don't see you as directly, you know, as a direct threat because you're not... Um, walking directly towards them in the end they're not there to hurt you they're just there to kind of scare you away so that they can continue to care for their eggs or their chicks so and sometimes it's unavoidable because different as i said previously different birds are different individuals so they may react differently so for example i can easily say that some nests that i found i couldn't even get close to the nest to kind of you know get some of these embryonic calls or collect my data, because the adults were so reactive. They were constantly swooping and they were constantly loudly calling. Whereas there were other nests that I could approach easily, and the adults wouldn't swoop, um, and they might give off a couple alarm calls to be like, hey, you know what are you doing near my nest? Um, so there's definitely that as well. So you can kind of learn how different birds act differently. Um, But I mean, if they are swooping you, I would just keep your head down, walk slowly away, try not to flinch or scream, even though I know it can take you by surprise, because if you do those kind of things, it does make it worse. And then you put yourself and the bird at the risk of an injury. (laughs)
1: fantastic well like i said i have some in my local area i am going to follow your advice and i am going to treat them with the respect that they deserve
2: perfect thank you
1: well well, thank you so much for talking to me crystal about some birds that i guess are quite common but people may not know that much about them yeah and best of luck with your phd thesis
2: thank you so much and it was great talking to you
1: fantastic that was crystal Costaglu from Deakin university
0: you are listening to lost in science and now we have part two of an interview from claire with valerie karen who was talking to valerie about dung beetles and how dung beetles could potentially help australian farmers in the future
3: i'm i'm interested um just about sort of like how dung beetles are you know how we can use them i guess to reduce the amount of potential like fertilizers that we need um and use them to you know potentially improve soils is that um is that something that you've researched in terms of you know what a what an increase in dung beetles on uh on a certain farm will will do for that sort of soil profile
4: yeah, so this is some of our colleagues in Australia. So the University of Western Australia that are working on this part of the program. So they are trying to figure out exactly, you know, what, what does it do to the soil, but also, you know, economically what it means for, for a farmer. So there's, there, they are, like, there is one part of the national program that is, um, that is on this. Um, so what we find is that actually, um, so actually I can't really talk about the results because I don't really, like, it's not my part of the work. Um, But what we find is that it should increase plant growth, which makes sense. Um, One of the main advantages also, as I said, is like not lose the nutrients and water pollution. So um, that's one of the big ones. And increasing um, aeration. So a lot of the livestock will trample soil Mm. and make it very, uh, very um, firm. And so by having dung beetles or um, making holes because they borrow, you know, they make little tunnels, where they put um, their their dung and, and their, their little eggs. Uh, so actually that really increase um, you know aeration so and water penetration as well. So, right. so that has to that improves pasture. But one of the main things that actually really improves is that you remove the dung. So instead of having like you know cow dung everywhere, for instance, if you think about a paddock mm-hmm. with, with some cows, um, you know, you don't have that. So the cow can eat everywhere. So you increase your productivity by a lot. And not just that, cows don't like to eat the grass that grows through dung. So even if it's a year later, they won't eat. For, they won't eat it, um, which I think it's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's like totally fair enough. But yeah, so that's one thing that you know. You, you, actually, people if they drive around um, in Victoria and New South Wales. You will see that in some paddock. You will see something you know a flat paddock with little bumps of grains yeah. and that's actually that so the cows just don't eat it's not as palatable to them mm. so you, oh, you actually so really improve you increase also your you know the amount yeah of um yeah i, I have to say that now that we're rearing a lot of beetles <laughs> in our lab uh, all uh, our team is actually all bringing the waste to our gardens i can tell you that actually dung that's been broken down by dung beetles it's fabulous for my tomatoes. Oh. So it, definitely, it, definitely, um, it definitely produced some really good fertilizer. That,
3: that. Well, I'm, I'm sold. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Anything that means that I don't have to buy as much fertilizer from Bunnings is awesome <laughs> by me. Um, Valerie, I'm really interested to hear about the process um, that the CSIRO goes through and that you have to go through, I guess, from yeah. a biosecurity point of view. Yeah. What yeah. the risks associated are with, I guess, bringing a dung beetle all the way from Morocco to Australia? Yeah,
4: yeah, we have to follow really strict biosecurity, you know, rules, and we are doing it to the dot. We don't take any risk. That that's for sure. Um, so what we do is that we, um, so you know, a team will go to the field in Morocco, collect beetles, then they will clean them, you know. Make sure that they identify them right, because there's a lot more dung beetles over there than there are here in, the, in, you know, in cattle pool, for instance. Uh, then they will send them to a laboratory in France, in Montpellier, in southern France, which is lovely. So they get a little bit of a break there. They get fed for a little bit. Um, Sometimes they'll be rare further So our team in France is really the one doing all the um, the research on on protocol, how to rare them. You know, what's the best way of wearing them in the laboratory, um, in laboratory conditions. Um, then they wash them. Starve them for three days. Um, take out any little mites because sometimes they, there's little mites that travel with them. Mm-hmm. They don't do anything on them. They just kind of travel. They call phoretic mites. Um, so remove everything. So the the you know they're very very clean by the time they're sent. Uh, they sent in several boxes so they sh- to make sure that there's absolutely nothing um, to be um, to, that that can escape. Um, they sent. Um, we have a special permit to get beetles in the country then the only way we can get those, you know, it's it's a very long process to get a permit. So they need to be a risk assessment before and all that. We get them in a quarantine facility. We can open the box there, we can uh, process them there. Um, at all times they have to be in boxes, they can't be, you know, let free or anything. So it's very, very strict like that. Uh, the only thing we're allowed to take the quarantine is their eggs and they have been surface sterilized. So we use a very strong product that kill any bacteria any virus, any nematode, not anything that could be on the egg wow. is killed. So the only thing we can take out is those eggs to make sure we don't bring in anything nasty. And then once they're out of quarantine, we have to rare them again, um, you know, outside quarantine after that. Um, and, and, and then you know, we can release them if we want or we can rare them further. So it, it, And even just, just to give an idea, to get a permit <laughs> takes about two years. So for, for instance, if you want to bring something in the country, you have to prove that it has no harm effectively. So dung beetles, we not only eat dung, that helps, because they can't switch to something else or, mm. you know, eat a plant or eat an animal. They only really eat dung beetles. Mm. So that makes it a lot safer. Mm. But even then, it took us to get the permit took nearly two years, like a year and a half. Um, just to get that permit.
3: And is there any risk for these uh, beetles from Morocco to be able to switch to native dung and potentially compete with our native uh, 500 species of dung beetle? Yeah. So that's definitely something
4: that, that we kind of aware. Like it's something that,
3: you know, there's, there's always a risk if
4: you bring something new. So I'm, I'm not going to say that is absolutely zero risk. So what happens is that the master dung is much drier so it's much, much omasuppules oh, oh, don't drink a lot of water and they're used to very dry vegetation. So they um their their dung is really, really dry. So that's one of the main differences compared to cattle dung that is very sloppy. That's a total different <laughs> different thing. Um would dung beetles be attracted, let's say, to kangaroo dung if there's nothing else, potentially, could they actually breed on them? Um, we we don't really know, but. So far, this so you know we have 23 species that have been introduced. There's no you know there's no direct um, negative impact that we found. So that's the good the good thing about dung beetles. Most native species don't like cattle dung, for instance. Um, so that's another thing they don't like it. And also, um, you know, cattle's and they much prefer open uh, open area. So so all the dung beetles that we have sourced, even with this you know, in the last. <laughs> 50, 60 years uh, prefer like open area, while a lot of, most native species pre- prefer shaded area or where marsupials are more abundant. So, it, yeah, so I, we don't expect any negative impact. We haven't seen any yet, but it is possible that it can be attracted to, let's you know, say, kangaroo dung or something like that, but we don't expect it to do it. Um, so at the moment we've got two tunnelers that we've introduced. So they're the ones that you have it done at the surface, and then they'll make little tunnels straight under it, and then that's where they lay. They lay their, um, you know, the offspring. But we, the last species we actually collected that we we just got in our, in our in our quarantine, it's not out yet. It's just in quarantine. Is a roller, and that's an interesting case because it does like sheep as well. So we will try it um, if, to see if it, it can use kangaroo dung, but my guess is that it won't be able to use it. So it will be interesting to see.
3: That's that's wonderful here. To it's wonderful to hear all the thinking behind it and all that extra testing that that happens before, you know, it's even in the country, let alone the testing that happens mm-hmm. before it's released into the environment. Um, what was I going to say? Um, Oh yeah, so so what are you looking forward to, and what is the next, uh, you know, big research or big part of this this research um, with the CSIRO? Ooh, so where we
4: what we are really interested, um, is um, so we'd like to improve the importation, you know, process because it is quite a difficult thing to do. So you know, there's 45 species that were introduced, 23 established. It's like not a great. Outcome really one out of two. It's not, it's not, it would be nice if we could improve it. So, one thing that we're really interested in is the microbiome of the dung beetles. So, like you know, humans or any organism, this we have got microbiome. What happened with dung beetles because dung is such a bad food source, it's something that's been eaten and it's the leftover, right? So, it's not very high quality. So, what happened is that um, the female, when she lays her egg, she put it on a little special poop Mm -hmm. (laughs) a little pedestal it's called so you've got a little chamber where the egg is found and that egg is sitting on a little pedestal and that's made of special poop that is the first thing the larva eats and that's what inoculates the gut of the larva and that means that if it's inoculated it has you know what that's needed all the microbes that it needs it needs to help it digest food. the way we do things in the laboratory like i explained before we sterilize the outside of the egg. So that larva, when we take it out of quarantine, it's got nothing. Mm-hmm. So not surprisingly, they're not doing as well.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: But we're really looking, um, so one re- part of the research we're really interested in is to look at the gut microbiome, the role of the gut microbiome in um, in dung beetles, and also how we can actually um, maybe use native species, to inoculate the eggs when they come out. So that kind of that look at, I got microbiome to improve the introduction process. And it's a really fascinating area that can have a lot of of implication as well.
3: Valerie, that is fascinating. My head is swimming with all the possibilities of what, you know, the gut microbiome (laughs) of a dung beetle could tell us and could help us. Um, in, you know, being able to manage our ecosystem. Um, thank you so much for um, coming on Lost in Science today and talking to us all about about dung beetles and um, our native and our um, imported beetles. Um, yeah, and good luck for the next stage of the research.
4: Thank you. And if you would like more information, there's a really good website for the national program. So it's www.dungbeetles.com.au. And then you can get all the information about the species in your area. It gives you information on how to identify them. Uh, it gives you information on the benefits of them. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend to of
0: That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost Lost in Science! Science!